0: in 2007 director ben affleck and star casey affleck gave the world a tense drama that asked the question what does it mean to save a child
1: in 2022 we return to isla for our third in the ardbeg series the film is gone baby gone the whiskey is ardbeg and O oh. and we'll review them both this is the, the film, and film and whiskey, whiskey podcast, podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at director Ben Affleck's 2007 film Gone, Baby, Gone. Brad, this is one of my picks on our Season 5 list. I know that you have never seen this movie, but boy oh boy... It's freaking fantastic. It's it's just so good. And I feel like this movie really got buried in the mix of 2007 movies. This was such a good year for movies. We've done quite a few from 07 on this podcast before we've done. uh, There will be blood. We've done no country for old men. It really got buried behind some of those films, even like a like a Michael Clayton. You know, it was just it didn't quite crack that top five of the year. And I think it's really the shame. And I think it's really a shame that it Michael didn't. Clayton. Yeah. Yeah, Michael Clayton. George Clooney. I've literally never heard of that in my <laughs> life. <laughs> You've never heard of it. It's like <laughs> a you know, I would say it's pretty famous. It was up for best picture. Here's the thing, man. I like
0: there's just certain movies that you talk about as if the public culture just knows about them, but some of them I'm like there Will Be Blood, never heard of it before this podcast. Michael Clayton, never heard of it until this very moment. Honestly, Gone Baby Gone, I don't think I ever heard about until this podcast. So I will say, as as the everyman on this podcast, Bob, I just feel like there's certain films that you are aware of and, and the film
1: world might be aware of that the the common public has no knowledge of. <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably true, but that's why we're here. And today we are introducing the general public to this movie, Gone Baby Gone.
0: Yeah, and as we get into it, we do want to let you know, Film and Whiskey Nation, we're speaking directly to you at this moment. There's certain films that we review that Bob and I kind of have a conscious like, you know, a lot of people probably haven't seen this, but they can still listen to the episode, enjoy it, have a good time. So if you are listening right now and you haven't seen Gone Baby Gone, I would heavily exhort you, uh, I would challenge you, I would call you to go watch that film first. Even if it takes you a week, uh, a month to like finally get down, sit down and watch it, and then come back and listen to the episode, that is totally fine with us. We think that this movie is so incredible, and that the twists and turns are so interesting that we don't want to spoil it for you. So this is probably the heaviest spoiler warning we've ever given, go watch Gone Baby Gone and then come back and listen to this episode.
1: <laughs> I think this is also the strongest we've ever hinted at how much we both like a movie. Uh, it's it's really fantastic. You Probably need like to a watch five it. or six out of 10 for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. No, it's really good.
0: It, dude, it's electric.
1: Like, <laughs> And part of what makes it so good, Brad, is this, I mean, this has all the elements of a classic film noir, right? Like, It's got a private investigator that is going into the seedy underbelly of a city and and finding corruption and solving crimes. But layered on top of that kind of neo-noir thing is this really deep philosophical underpinning. There's questions of what does it mean to do the right thing? Uh, what, What are the shades of gray at play here? And I think the moral aspect of this movie is what really pushes it over the top beyond just being kind of like a seedy crime tale
0: yeah, really. This is genuinely an incredible film. And what makes it so good, I think on a very simple level, is that in the midst of like some some pretty great cinematography and sound editing, and like, you know the the technical aspects of this movie are really well done, like solid eight to nine out of ten across the board. they layer on top of that some phenomenal acting performances. And these, like you said, these philosophical questions about, like, how do we live in a dark and broken world? And whenever a movie can force you to confront those types of questions, I'm like, I'm in, dude. I'm totally sold.
1: All right. It is time to move into Brad Explains. This is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the film that he has just seen, often for the first time. This was Brad's first time watching Gone Baby Gone. As we move into Brad explains, we do want to encourage you, if this is your first time listening to the show or if you're a long-time listener, check out our Patreon page, patreon.com/filmwhiskey. You can subscribe to our you can subscribe to our show at three different tiers, $3, $5, and $7 a month. At each tier you get a ton of bonus perks including episodes that are made just for Film and Whiskey listeners. So for the price of a cup of coffee a month, you can get access to all this special bonus content. Brad, we have hem hot enough. Let's get into Brad Explains. You have 60 seconds on the clock. Can you explain the plot of Gone Baby Gone? A young child in Boston is kidnapped. The family hires
0: a team of private investigators, uh, Patrick, Kenzie, and I honestly can't even think of her name. Uh, Michelle Monahan plays her. They are a couple that does uh, private eye work in the city. They come alongside the police with Morgan Freeman and Ed Harris, and they try to help solve this crime. Uh, in the midst of figuring things out, they find this crime lord who has had money stolen from him. They think that he, he kidnapped the girl as ransom to get his money back. They, there's a shootout at a quarry, and it's believed that the girl falls into the quarry and dies. Uh, the second half of the film is dedicated to seeing the private eyes try to come to terms with this, come to grips with it. In following the lead on another uh, pedophile, they realize that this little girl has not been killed, and there's
1: wild twists and turns. Time. I, th- I think that's... You did pretty good, man. Nicely done. Yeah. All right, Brad, this is my movie, but you sound as excited if not more excited about it than I do so I want to let you pick where we go from here where would you like to start do you want to dive right in on the performances or should we start somewhere else what do you think I think that the first thing that that really stood out to me is
0: that this feels like one of the best directed crime dramas I've ever seen and I I think you would agree with me on that would you not
1: Absolutely. And and I think it's, it's well directed and it's really well edited. Hmm. Ben Affleck and his editor do this thing where like in each scene, it kind of kicks off each scene with almost like a documentary style. Like they do a little montage of real life in each part of the city that they're going to visit. And so you'll have some shots of just like extras of real life people on the streets of Boston. And it really gives you this kind of lived in authentic feel to the whole thing.
0: Yeah, I I think that for me, what really stood out in this film was the way he weaved the lifeblood of Boston as a city in with all of the various characters and how they interact with one another. I I loved how it felt like near the start and near the end of the movie and, and once or twice in the middle, Affleck was willing to just kind of take you on a on a pictographic tour. Of Boston, like showing people just walking around the city and sitting at the bar and, you know, milling about the crime scene. And I don't know, there's something about that, that like, I think that a good crime drama from what I've seen, like embodies the geography of, of an area. Does that make sense? And like, like when you think about the wire, like you literally can't not think about Baltimore and the setting that it's in and, and the issues that Baltimore is facing as a city. I, I think that good crime dramas do that. And he does that by giving you these panoramic montages of the people of Boston.
1: You know, Ben Affleck famously from <laughs> from Boston. What? I know uh, who would have known it is Mark Wahlberg also from from Boston. Uh, no, I think uh, he's actually from Albuquerque.
0: Oh, <laughs> yeah, obviously. he has <laughs> got a little bit of a Tallahassee vibe.
1: <laughs> yeah, man, there's just something about Boston as one of these great American cities for a crime story. There's so much history there. There's so much culture there, but it's a very specific kind of culture And I think having a director who knows the area that he's working in really lends this, really suits this movie well. Right? Like we talk all the time about directors are at their best when they're filming what they know. There is a reason that the most famous Scorsese movies have to do with the Italian mob, right? That's not to say that Scorsese's a mobster, but like he understands the life of Italian Americans. And I think, you know, for Affleck to really lean into the Boston of it all is what makes this movie work so well. He understands what it's like on the ground level in that city.
0: Yeah, and I I will say, as somebody who I have lived in Boston two separate times in my life, actually, it rang incredibly true to me. And, like, one small way that it did was, uh, you know, I don't know if a non-Boston area person would recognize this, but when they go to find the, the gentleman who is a pedophile and the two people that he's living with, they go to the city of Lynn. And I, I actually lived in Lynn for a season and did some ministry there. And there's actually, Bob, this is wild. There's, a, there's like a little song that locals will sing about Lynn. And it's Lynn, Lynn, the city of sin. You don't come out the way you went in. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> but like any of our Boston listeners, you can you can shout out if if you've heard that before. But that is like what I was told when I was living in the city of Lynn. And so, you know, that was just a little piece where I'm like, oh, yeah, obviously, you know, some people who do a lot of crack and other unhealthy things would live in Lynn like that. That that hit home for
1: me. <laughs> yeah. And again, like I, I was saying, Boston Is just such a great setting for stories like this. It's it's one of those cities that primarily on the East Coast, you know, it's like Boston, Philly's a great city, New York a little bit, uh, you know, and like D.C. They're just great settings for movies where there's like something bubbling under the surface. Right. (laughs) Great at being corrupt. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And. I think part of it too with Boston is that it is such a strongly Catholic city. It's such a strongly Irish city mm, yeah. that there's just something about when you have a story that is about a cover up or, you know, corruption. I think about this movie. I think about Mystic River. You know, even you could stretch this to a movie like Spotlight, which is based on a true story about the the journalist at the Boston Globe who uncovered the the Catholic priest scandal like there's something about the culture of that city that really plays into this well.
0: Yeah, I, I think that the best way to explain it is if you go back and listen to our baseball, like top baseball movie episode, it was a bonus episode about a month ago. We talk about how, like, whenever you watch a baseball movie, Everyone is familiar with the rules and the geography. Like we all understand what a baseball diamond looks like, what it means when you hit the ball over the fence, what it means when somebody gets struck out. Like everyone has a familiarity with what's going on. And it feels like with the plethora of Boston movies that have come out, anytime you hear a Boston accent, you realize a movie is set in Boston we all go, oh, I'm familiar with the rules at play here. I'm familiar with the personalities, with with what's going to be displayed. And it sets you up in such a way that the, the director doesn't have to have a montage explaining, you know, what Boston is like. We just know what it's like.
1: Yeah. And I think that there's a there's a scene that really demonstrates this. It's, uh, you know, we we've talked about spoilers a little bit, but I'm going to get into my first real spoiler here. The girl's uncle um, Lionel. Yeah, Lionel. You find out that he is kind of in on the whole thing, that he has arranged for this girl to be kidnapped for a weekend and kind of taken away from her mom to teach her a lesson. And then everything goes awry. And Lionel is kind of spiraling at the end of the movie. He's trying to figure out how to get away with this. And he calls up a corrupt cop who helped him pull off this whole thing. And he's talking to the cop. And talking about how he's going to, you know, he's going to spill the beans and he doesn't know what he's going to do. And the cop says, where I'm from, you take your secrets to your grave. And, you know, the ironic thing is that cop is like from Louisiana. He's not even a Boston guy, but he fits right in right They're They're going to this bar called Murphy's Law to go meet and talk about all this stuff. And it just there's. Everything about that scene is so Irish. It's just so like we take our secrets with us to our grave. We push everything down. We never talk about our problems. It just works so well. Also, I love that they go to the bar Murphy's Law and everything that could go wrong there
0: ends up going wrong. It's like, <laughs> Do you get it? Do you get it?
1: <laughs> All right, Brad, let's start talking about the performances a little bit. I want to talk about Casey Affleck. Uh, he's obviously uh, he's won an Oscar. He is a well-regarded actor. He too is prone to movies about the Boston area, right? Like the movie he won his Oscar for was Manchester by the Sea. Do you want to know something? Do you want to know something fun about Manchester <laughs> by the Sea? Fun. <laughs> I have been to the city, Manchester by the Sea. Wow! Hey, good for you, man. I, I uh, took... if you'd ever seen that movie, you would know that there's <laughs> n- there's nothing fun about Manchester by the Sea. <laughs> It's like saying, uh, hey, you wanna hear something fun I learned about Schindler's list? That's <laughs> a real downer. <laughs> well, a, I've of never a seen movie. Manchester by the Sea. And B, I've been there. That's that's pretty awesome. You got it. Okay, so so Casey Affleck is obviously the subject of some controversy now. I know a lot of people are still out on Casey Affleck, but Brad, if we're just looking at the performance that he gives in this movie, he is he's pretty phenomenal. Like he really kills it in this movie. And he's the kind of actor where nothing about him screams movie star, like he's never going to be a like a megawatt movie star, but he is able to star in a movie and really carry the movie emotionally. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think that when you look at Casey, a like, I don't want to be.
0: I don't want to be like crude or mean to his career, but, you know, nepotism it It's a beautiful thing. It's it's helpful. Uh, th- but the second thing I'll say is that he just weirdly has this vibe of, like, a character actor, but he also can carry a movie on his own. You know, and I, I think the big thing about character actors is you would assume that, like, oh, they play the same role. They're not somebody who would ever be the the leading man or leading woman in a movie. And yet... Casey Affleck is in this weird place where I feel like he plays a similar person in most of his roles, and yet when I see him as the lead in a movie, I'm like, yeah, I'm in. He has some daggone great acting chops, especially in this film.
1: Yeah, and I think that if you look at the other movie that he made this year, The Assassination of Jesse James, you really—I know you're out on that movie, Brad. I know you you don't like that movie, but— you really see the differences, the subtle differences in the way that he plays characters like this, right? Like he's hes not a very large man and he kind of leans into the uh, like the weaseliness of that role of Robert Ford. What What was the other movie, Bob? <sighs> Brad, why do you? I, I, I didn't recognize do do the title that you said. The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert oh, Ford. Oh, that
0: movie. I remember that one now. Man, <laughs> there we go. Bob, I made a promise that every time I referenced it, I would call it by its full name.
1: And here we are three years later, three years later. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I I really do think that you see the nuances in his ability to play both of these characters, where in this movie he's playing a guy that really stands by his morals and sticks up for his morals. And then in the other movie, he is the complete opposite of that. Really just a, a truly great actor. And then on the other hand, you have his counterpart in this, his girlfriend played by Michelle Monaghan, who, Brad, I, I mean, I don't know why she never got more famous. She's a really good actress and, you know, she's still a working actress, but. Are there are there non-working actresses? <laughs> yeah, of course. Like, <laughs> go to Hollywood and go into any coffee shop and you'll see a ton of non-working <laughs> actresses and actors. Oh, man. So with Michelle Monaghan, though, I, I do think that. She isn't really given a lot on the page, but what she does with it is so, so good. That very last scene you get of the two of them together, you know, kind of trying to decide what to do with this moral conundrum. She's just so good in this movie.
0: Yeah, I this is a place where I disagree a little bit. I feel like it's not her fault, but I feel like she kind of disappears into this movie. Like after finish. Yeah, like after finishing this movie, I was thinking about the characters and I literally couldn't even remember her name. Like she just feels like a a sidekick in all of the worst ways that she just shows up with with Casey Affleck and like is misogynized against. I don't know if that's the right way of saying it, but, you know, people are kind of sexist towards her. And she asks a few questions, but she never, like, really stands up for herself or, like, in my mind, like, proves her worth to the team. It genuinely just feels like she's there throughout the whole film for that final emotional breakdown of, like, you choose me or you choose what you think is the right thing to do. And so I, I struggle with Monahan in this film because of that, where I'm like, I, I liked her performance, but it feels like she needed more screen time to show how she and Patrick Kenzie were like genuinely in love with one another. I, I guess I just felt like she and uh, and Casey Affleck didn't really have any chemistry at all.
1: Yeah, again, though, that last scene and and Ben Affleck frames it so beautifully when they're trying to decide what to do with this girl who they've now found healthy and alive and living a happy life out in the country Do we give her back to her mom or do we kind of help cover up this thing? And Casey Affleck's character makes the decision to call the cops and to do, you know, quote unquote, the right thing. And she didn't want to. She wanted to leave the girl there. And the way that it's framed is it's a shot reverse shot of them just kind of staring at each other wordlessly. And in the background, out of focus, you see the police cars kind of ride in. It's just so well done. And her emotion in that scene, it's it just it's pitch perfect, man. It's it's incredible. Uh, I think that. Yeah, I I said everything I need to say. What I feel is how I feel about her. (laughs) All right. And then I think the rest of the cast, we can kind of divide pretty evenly between the police and the people that are helping the police and the girl's family. And let's start on the police side of things. Right. You've got Morgan Freeman playing the police captain. And then you've got Ed Harris playing uh, a detective who is on this case. And I want to start with Ed Harris, because I think that like most movies featuring Ed Harris, this really falls apart without him. Like, he's one of those actors that he never gets the credit he deserves, but he is always on his A game. And in this movie, if he doesn't land the twists and turns that go with his character, the movie just does not work at all. He is so
0: simultaneously tightly wound as a character and yet feels like he is in utter rock solid control of every scene he's in. He just plays off those two levels of like energy and uh, just an ability to dominate any situation he's in and yet you can tell that he's terrified of things not being in his control.
1: Like I I don't
0: know how he does it, but by god he is amazing in this movie
1: yeah and i want to call attention to one scene and it is it's this scene where i think the movie really kind of tips into being really really dark like kind of perversely dark for a minute
0: yeah i I was gonna say real quick here i we don't often do this we we did at the start but this is a genuine trigger warning yeah like i think this would be a fair place to say um that we're talking about pedophilia, and Stuff like that. So if that's something that's, that's going to mess with you a little bit, maybe fast forward five minutes.
1: Yeah. Thank you for that. So after they think the little girl has died and there's kind of like a, a lull in the movie for a little bit, as they're trying to emotionally recover from this case, a drug dealer that Casey Affleck knows basically calls him up and says, Hey, I've got a lead on this other missing kid and this pedophile that I think may have taken him. And I'm going over to that house Do you want to come with me? And basically it all, again, it all goes to shit. And, uh, they're trying to raid this house. And it turns out this pedophile has already killed the little boy and a police officer gets gunned down in the process. It's Ed Harris's partner. And after all this, they, you know, Casey Affleck's in the hospital. He gets checked out and he walks outside the hospital and Ed Harris is there like drinking heavily, uh, outside the hospital, mourning the loss of Mm -hmm. his partner. And the two of them have this scene where, the philosophy of the movie is really kind of laid bare. And Ed Harris is talking about, like, what is the right thing to do? And are you on my side or not? My side is protecting innocent children against dangerous people. And he demonstrates in that moment, I'm willing to do whatever I see necessary to put bad guys in jail and keep kids away from them. I've planted evidence before. I'm willing to do probably more than that. And Casey Affleck really struggling with, like, How can you do these objectively wrong things, even if they're in pursuit of this, like, objectively right, you know, philosophy? And it is such a great scene. Ed Harris is drunk and he's playing drunk so well. But that scene doesn't work unless you're kind of convinced by his way of thinking. And that's what's so good about this movie is that even if you don't agree with everybody's philosophy, you understand what is making people tick. And You understand what's making Ed Harris tick in that moment? Yeah,
0: I mean the the philosophy, the philosophical war in this movie is between the ends justify the means and the means have to justify the ends. And Casey Affleck falls in that place where no, like we have to do the right thing even if it doesn't lead to the end that we think is best. And Ed Harris is no, whichever end we think is the best justifies whatever we do to get there and you know it initially you see him do that in ways of like yeah i'll plant evidence on a drug dealer and that will help achieve the end that his child won't be with him anymore but by the end of the movie it's i will fake rob a bar in order to prevent this secret from getting out
1: and <laughs> right you know, and not, into- not only that but also like try to murder yeah an informant in mm-hmm. order to preserve this lie that I've gone this far down the road. With. Yeah, uh,
0: just abs absolutely wild. And so you see how the movie portrays it, that his philosophy leads him to a place where he is doing genuinely uh, immoral things.
1: But does it just but does it justify the means? All right, real quick. I want to talk about Morgan Freeman because he also he's in this movie for like 10 minutes tops. And he plays such a crucial role in this movie. And again, we're going to talk about the very end of the movie. You find out that it is actually Morgan Freeman who has been harboring this girl for so long. And his character has this backstory where his own daughter was murdered. And uh, so you feel sympathy for him and you understand his motivations, right? Like he's raising this little girl in a healthy, loving home, even though he stole her from her real home. And there is just this moment, Brad, at the end of the movie. When the cop cars ride in to arrest Morgan Freeman and they put him in the back of that cop car and he has this look on his face and it's not even a look of like, I'm resigned to my fate or I regret what I've done. He's still watching this little girl be kind of ripped away from the arms of his wife and the look of just angst and grief and care for this little girl and what's going to happen for her. It's again, it's a movie where people are doing wrong things and you still understand that their motivations are kind of in the right place. I, I think that
0: his performance and the believability of his performance hinges on the fact that you don't associate him with Ed Harris because Ed Harris is the proponent of the philosophy that the ends justify the means. Right. And the ends are genuinely good ends, healthy children being cared for by healthy people. Right. Like he like he says it multiple times, like I love children. And so but what what they do so brilliantly is that because Morgan Freeman is so rarely in the movie and they use a small like plot point in the middle of the film to set Ed Harris against Morgan Freeman. Right. They 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 say that they got a transcript of the call. And, you know, Morgan Freeman is pissed that his detective set up an unauthorized thing and dragged him into this. And, oh, I'm, I'm going to begrudgingly go along with it because there's nothing else we can do now. When they do that, that's like one of those plot points that you think that Morgan Freeman is not with Ed Harris in that philosophy, which sets you up for the turn. Oh, He's actually the person in power that can empower that philosophy and empower Ed Harris to live it out, and so that, like that's that's just really well done, man. That's just good writing in a mystery drama crime thriller.
1: And then on the other side of things, you have the girl's family, right? And I think the first person we should talk about there is Amy Ryan, who a lot of people will only know as uh, Jan from The Office, but in this Holly. movie. <laughs> oh, shoot. Definitely it's not I'm, Jan. <laughs> definitely not Jan. Definitely not Jan. But in this movie, she is playing so different from that character, right? This is definitely not Holly from The Office. Not quite the same. Although, for you Office lovers out there, this movie
0: does have an Office reference. At one point, Amy Ryan played, you know, she's playing a character named Helene. They talk about how she makes a run up, a run of drugs up To Nashua, which is where her character played in The Office.
1: (laughs) She's nominated for an Oscar for this movie, and I think she absolutely deserves it. She's so convincing. And I think the only thing that could really pull you out of this character is if you're kind of constantly watching this going, Holly from The Office. It's Holly from The Office. Hey, I remember her from The Office. (laughs) Like, I think there's a way to look at some performances like this sometimes and just see through to the actor. But if you allow this movie to just kind of wash over you, man, she is so good at playing this person who you really can't tell, like, is she just in the throes of addiction and therefore incapable of caring for her child? Or is she actually just a bad mom on top of it? Because she has these moments where she really feels guilt and remorse for how bad of a mother she's been, but then she falls right back into the same patterns again. And I think she plays that that dichotomy or that tension of, like, is she just a drug addict or is she also a horrible person deep down? She plays it really well. Dude, the, the thing about this movie that hit
0: home so hard for me was that, you know, in, in my decade plus of doing ministry with people and, and working with people who are homeless, who, who have addictions, this movie knocked it out of the park as far as representing what being around those people is like. You know, there's a genuine difficulty of, can I trust this person this time? Can I believe that they're really going to change? Are they actually going to care for their children? Are they actually going to care for themselves? It's a constant struggle that people who have family members who have addictions have to deal with. And and you see Patrick dealing with it. You see Lionel and uh, I think his wife is B that they have to deal with where at a certain point B and Lionel basically are of the opinion that Helene is not a worthwhile mother and this child would be better in their care. And you can feel that just in the fact that they hire a private eye rather than the mother. Like it's just so incredibly well-written. And uh, honestly, in this moment I'm realizing Clint Eastwood could take a few lessons because I, th- I think about Million Dollar Baby and the way he portrays poor white people. And it feels so on the nose, so stereotypical. There's just a level of nuance in these characters and a level of believability that they might end up being good and they might end up being bad that makes them feel real to me that I'm just like the the writers for this movie are leaps and bounds ahead of most other writers when it comes to describing uh, if I'm being if I'm being honest when
1: it comes to describing poor white people all right and then you've got Titus Welliver playing Uncle Lionel who is I mean he's really really good in this movie but great mustache work going on in this movie like a truly great mustache his his mustache is even better But I actually want to talk about Amy Madigan as Aunt B because she's really not in the movie very much. But for me, she stole every scene she was in. Like you felt her grief. I I thought she really anchored that kind of family unit, really unsung performer and performance. And I thought she was spectacular. Yeah,
0: it it genuinely it genuinely feels like um, I can't remember her name, but the performance in Network. That won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress, and she was on screen for seven minutes, six minutes of a two-hour movie. Like, this reminded me of that.
1: Fun fact, Amy Madigan married to Ed Harris. Mm, there you go. And and also in Field of Dreams, which oh. you referenced baseball movies earlier. So we've we've come full circle, man. Dude, we are, like, way <laughs> over time for normal. I think you can tell that we love a movie when it's like 47
0: minutes in before we get to the whiskey.
1: (laughs) Well, Brad, I think it's time for us to try this Ardbeg N-O. What do you say? I I mean, you just said two letters. I don't know.
0: (laughs) Let's get to it, Bob. Film and Whiskey Nation, are you getting bored with your cocktail game? A little tired of the same old whiskey sour? Then you need to be checking out our friends at Route 23. Route 23 is a women owned business that specializes in all natural simple syrups that will absolutely transform your mixed drink experience. Their roster of flavors is absolutely impeccable. We're talking blueberry mint, cherry almond, cucumber habanero, grapefruit basil, maple cinnamon, pear rosemary, vanilla ginger, and their two newest additions, cranberry apple spice and yuzu citrus. If that list of names doesn't get your brain percolating on some new recipe ideas for mixed drinks, then I, I don't know what will. Route 23 is incredibly versatile and so easy to integrate into your home bar. And right now is the best time to do that because they're offering our listeners a 10% discount. Use the code whiskey10 at checkout to get 10% off your order. You can find them online at route23.com. That's R O O T the number
1: 23.com. Right, so today we are checking out Ardbeg an O. That's how it's pronounced, Brad. An O A N space O A an O, and the O is like a uh, like a hill or a mountain range that kind of surrounds the Ardbeg distillery on uh, on Isla. So this is a reference to that that mighty hunk of earth that protects their <laughs> distillery, uh, and you know, in in terms of their marketing and their copy on the box that talks about how. Much like how well-rounded that is, this is also well-rounded. So this is a, a marriage of a bunch of different kinds of bags. Some of it finished in new charred oak. Some of it finished in uh, PX sherry casks. Some of it finished in first fill bourbon casks. They blend it all together. They've produced O with it. This is a, like a relatively newer expression from them. It clocks in at, uh, what are we coming in at, Brad? We are looking at a 93.5. Point- Two don't you forget that that you know two
0: tenths of a percent ninety three uh, point two. Uh, so yeah, it is a little bit hotter than a lot a lot of Scotch impressions that I've seen before.
1: Yeah, that's true. That's true. So it's non age stated. We know it's at least three years old uh, uh, at minimum, um, but it's definitely a blend. So Brad, let's go ahead and jump right in. This is the third in our line of Ard bags. We've been you know we liked the wee beastie but we really liked the 10. So I'm interested to see what we get here with this non-age stated version. Brad, what are you picking up on the nose?
0: You know, I I think that the thing I've learned about uh, peated scotches is you just have to be willing to sit with the nose for a lot longer um, because the peat will always come across pretty strong uh, on first glance, second glance, third, and maybe even fourth. But once once you've sat with it for a while, you start to get past the peat and into some of the flavors. For me, this one has a as a nice, pleasant sweetness. There's a little bit of honey, tiny bit of caramel, and then almost a fruitiness—some uh, pear, some apple—and um, then on the back end at the finish, I almost get a little bit of that vegetable um, that we've talked about in other ones. It's a very pleasant nose. I'll say this, it's not blowing me away, and it doesn't feel different enough from the Ardbeg 10 to, like, uh, truly stand out. I think I'll give it a seven and a half on the nose.
1: Yeah, this is interesting. Um, there's there's a hint of sweetness, but this is by far the smokiest one in terms of the peat. Like, it definitely smells like... like uh... Almost like when you're burning wet wood, you know what I mean? Like this smells like they're burning the marsh and it's still kind of damp. Um, I'm getting a little bit of like olive brine on this as well. So it's really tipping into the more like saline heavy stuff. I'm not really a fan of olives. I know you're not either, Brad, but it's an intriguing nose. I'm just, I'm not quite sure where it's going to go yet. So I'm going to give it a six and a half on the nose. Yeah, this one, I think that your
0: taste of olive is like incredibly on point. For me, it it tastes like a little bit like you're drinking a a jar of olive juice. Um, There's not as much sweetness on the tongue as I had hoped. There's like no honey or caramel or anything that I got on the nose. To me, I think this is what people think of when they think of scotch. Something salty, something smoky, something kind of that, that olive brine vegetable flavor. It's not bad. It is unique and interesting. It's just not quite in my full wheelhouse. Um, I I know Bob that you're a little more into the sweeter whiskeys than me, but even with scotches, I like having a little mixture of like a fruity sweetness or or a caramely or a honey. This doesn't have any of that. Uh, I'm gonna give it a six and a half out of ten on the flavor. There's still interesting stuff going
1: on here, but yeah. Oh yeah, this one is um really earthy i guess that would be the word i use it's got kind of that pine thing going on and i know that i've used that weird note before of like when you go out in the garden and you pull like a really thick like fibrous kind of weed and it has that certain smell on its like sap that kind of is what i'm getting here on the taste a little bit it's good but it it's man there's like no sweetness at all and this is really really strongly peated this one I actually think this would go pretty well with like a piece of meat, like a steak or something salty. I think uh, it would complement that really well. I don't know if this is one that I would just want to like sit and sip on its own, though, if that makes sense. There's a touch of orange, but for me, it's like a little bit more of a bitter orange. And so, yeah, I like it, but I'm just going to give it a 7 out of 10.
0: Yeah, and the finish, I I like a little bit more. I I think that for me, that orange note you picked up on the nose, it it feels like there's a little bit of a tart yet sweet orange slice uh, as it just sits on my palate for a while that mixes with a little bit of a spicy uh, kind of clove uh, uh, note to it. And then once again, there's just just kind of a, a nice little piece of like broccoli or celery or or something along those lines that that lingers for a while. Uh, it's a little more engaging than the taste. I'll give it a seven out of 10 on the finish.
1: Yeah, I'm kind of in the same place. There's there's that kind of medicinal note that goes with this, Brad. And when I say medicinal, it's almost like, you know, like when you have an orange and it's it's gone and it's starting to grow penicillin, there's like that very specific smell of like penicillin. It's almost like I get that on the finish here. Um, And I know that like a few weeks ago, I I found the note of Band-Aid and Brad kind of laughed at me. But these are notes that people pick up on scotch all the time, like medicinal penicillin bandage (laughs) are real notes that you'll see when people review scotch. And then when you drink one, you're like, I kind of understand that now. So it's not necessarily a bad thing because these are notes people expect to find here. It's just more of a question of like, is this your preferred flavor profile? And for me, I like a scotch that has just a little hint of sweetness underlying it as opposed to like the smoky, smoky smoke that is is coming off of this. Yeah. So some people would love these notes on a scotch. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah, I think I'm going to give it a seven on the finish because again, like this is a well-made whiskey and I can tell that it's a well-made whiskey and I think that like I'm already starting to think of my value score because I don't know if I would pay a certain amount for it, but that doesn't mean that it's not worth that amount for people who like it. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I think that, you know, this will especially reflect in our value
0: score. I think that some people would look at this and give it like eight or nine across the board be, because this is their preferred wheelhouse of whiskey. Uh, if anything, this is one where I think we're betraying a little bit of what we like in whiskey. And that's that's
1: totally fine. All right, so what are you thinking about the balance here, Brad? Because I'm kind of, I actually think it's pretty well balanced. I think I'd give it like an 8 out of 10 on the balance. Where are you falling? Yeah, I'll give it a 7 on balance. I think that what it is shooting to do, it does really well. I think it's a little
0: misleading on the nose, and that's why it's not quite an 8 or a, you know, even like an 8.5. But overall, it's pretty solid. Uh, and that brings us to our value category. Now, this bad boy you can pick up in the state of Ohio for $49.99. So, this is like falling into the range of pretty much everything else we've drank from Ardbeg thus far. Bob, for you, where you are at with your palate, what does $50 say to you as far as this whiskey?
1: Mm. Yeah, I, I don't know if I'd want to spend $50 on this, but I think it's worth $50. Honestly, this kind of reminds me of Lagavulin. I don't know if you've ever had Lagavulin, but it seems like an underaged, like if you pulled Lagavulin from the barrel a little too early huh. before it kind of rounded and got mellow a little bit. Dude, I had the Lagavulin, I think 23 year or 26 year
0: uh, on my fifth anniversary a few years ago. Oh my gosh, dude.
1: Oh man. That it's great. so, so good. Yeah. Yeah, like, again, this one just seems like an underaged Lagavulin. <laughs> L- Loggy light. <laughs> Loggy light. <laughs> yeah, so, man, I-, I think I'll give it, again, a 7 out of 10 on value. I think it's worth the price, but only if this sounds appealing to you. I For me, I'm going to just stick with
0: as far as what value I think it is with my palate. I'll give it a 6 out of 10. I think that there's a few other scotches in this $50 range that I would just very clearly recommend over it, that it makes it hard for me to give this a high score on value. But like I said, if this is in your wheelhouse, it's probably like a nine or a 10 on value. So if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, I like I could drink scotch all day. Give me the heaviest peat you can. I want all those medicinal vegetable notes then this is probably a 10 out of 10 value for you because 50 bucks is a a great value for a well-crafted whiskey. So, uh, and and with all that being said, my total is coming out to
1: a 34 out of 50. Bob, where are you at? Yeah, I'm at a 35.5. So that is bringing us to a 69.5 out of 100. For a 34.75 out of 50, Brad, it's like right under that 35 range where we start to recommend things. And I actually do think I would recommend at least trying this one. I don't know if I would say like run out and buy a bottle, especially if you're not like really into peated scotch, but I think it's worth trying. Yeah, this is one that I I actually would wholeheartedly
0: recommend. Even if you don't care for some of those notes, I'm all about people opening up their their whiskey profile. That, that to to delve into new horizons is a good thing, even if you come away not enjoying it. So, you know, maybe don't go buy a bottle flat out, but I would 100% recommend going out and finding a, a dram of the Ardbeg Anno as, as soon as you can.
1: All right, Brad, what do you say we get back into talking about Gone Baby Gone? Let's get to it. All right. That was Ardbeg and O. Oh. we are getting back into talking about a movie that we both really love gone, baby gone. But Brad, it is time for our newest segment, two facts and a falsehood. I got to say, man, you have been doing a really good job on the two facts and a falsehood the last couple of weeks. I've been uh, I've been really up and down on these. Yeah, you're definitely on hot and cold <laughs> streaks thus far. Yeah, I can't. Did I did I get last week's correct? Uh, no, you did not. OK, so I think my record is like four, two and one. I don't remember. Well, have to go back and look at my actual record, but uh, I'm not doing as well as I would like to be doing. But let's see if I can improve that today, Brad. Well, this week's facts, two facts and a falsehood. Fact number one, Amy
0: Ryan was not allowed on set on the first day of shooting because her costume and accent were so convincing that they believed she was just like a fan outside just, you know, trying to sneak her way in. Hmm. Fact number two. This is the only film directed by Ben Affleck that he does not also appear in. Okay. Fact number three. Matt Damon, famous friend of Ben Affleck's, was heavily considered for the role of Patrick Kenzie.
1: Hmm. All right. I think number two is true. I think he's yeah. Number two is true. So I'm going to rule that one out. So is it one or three? Man, the good thing about what you do with these is you make them so like they're all so realistic that they could be true. I think that Casey Affleck's character is referred to as like a baby face so much throughout this movie that I don't think they just did that because he was in it. I think it's probably part of the character and i think matt damon was probably a little too old at this point to play that character. so i'm going to say number 3 is the falsehood. number 3 is the falsehood, robert. Yeah, there it is. Dude, you're Got killing it. it, man. Back on top again, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I always feel bad when i when i get it correct and i don't like prolong it a little bit. i feel like we get better content. When it's really a stumper. So I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry to uh, to cut you short on your rhythm here, man. Hey, no worries, man. I'm all about it. I, I rejoice in your success, Bob. Honestly, Brad, I don't have too much more to say about this movie. I'd really like to hear maybe some of your final thoughts. But what really still sticks out for me with this movie is how much it leaves you questioning were the right decisions made? And that final shot of them watching TV together is just it's such a good ending moment. I don't know. I'd, I'd love for you to go in on the ending a little bit more or maybe any other thoughts you have before we move into final scores. Yeah, I, I think that the the beautiful thing about this movie
0: is that it feels like everything you want out of a crime drama. Like there's relationships that matter uh, as you were talking earlier about the philosophies of the movie, I think that what works so well, and this is like a more technical writing standpoint, is that a good story usually has a ton of characters, whether good or bad, that are like firmly planted in their convictions. Mm-hmm. And then you Mm -hmm. watch the main character who isn't firmly planted in their convictions bounce off these different ideas and philosophies and make decisions about who they're going to be. And I think that this movie does that. Like you have Patrick Kenzie who is trying to figure out how should I live in this dark seedy world and what decisions should I make on behalf of someone who is innocent and who doesn't really understand the world in a way that they can make decisions for themselves. I think that this movie just represents that dilemma beautifully, you know, And, and I think that it leaves you at the end of the film, you know, Casey Affleck is sitting on the couch and we just had a interview where Helene has said, you know, my advice for other parents is to never let your children out of your arms. And then she's leaving her children out of her arms in the same way that she did earlier in the film by saying, oh, you know, who's going to watch your child? Dottie, but she doesn't know yet. She'll know in five minutes. Like, you get this picture that she is doing the same thing. She hasn't changed. Casey Affleck offers to watch, you know, the child. And I I think one of my favorite touches of the film is that he asks her, like, oh, is this, um, I think the doll's name is Madeline. Or, or Mary Bell or something like that. And the daughter corrects him and says, no, it's Annabelle. Mm-hmm. And like the whole movie, her own mother has been calling the, the doll, you know, Mary Bell. And you realize like this mother is so terrible. She doesn't even know the name of her daughter's favorite mm-hmm. doll. And mm-hmm. so you yeah. get this final shot where Casey Affleck is sitting there on the couch. He's lost his girlfriend. Uh, I don't think he's lost his job necessarily, but at the very least he's lost his appetite for the work. It feels like, like he's lost everything, but he did the right thing. And was it worth it?
1: And I just, I don't know, man. It's just, it's just so well crafted. It is really well crafted. And honestly, I kept thinking throughout this movie, I hate to sound like such an old man, but like they don't make them like this anymore. But they really don't make them like this anymore. If this movie came out today, it would go straight to Netflix and it would be filmed on digital. And I think one of the things that really struck me watching this movie right from the beginning was, oh, this is shot on film and it's grainy, but it has that really filmic cinematic look to it. And I think that really serves the movie well. I just I hate when a movie looks like it was shot on an iPhone and Affleck really knows what he's doing here. Him and his cinematographer. The The lighting is great. The film stock feels appropriate. And then on top of that, I thought that this movie had a really beautiful score. Like the music to this movie was really, really good. And it, it kind of sounded, I think this only makes sense if you've seen a ton of movies, but like it sounded kind of like a score from 2007. But at the same time, I really liked that. I liked that it had this kind of aching, cinematic quality to it, because you would go from like the really down and dirty, almost documentary feel of some scenes, and then you would go into like a very Hollywood feeling scene. And I don't know, it just it worked really well for me. And the score tied it together well.
0: Yeah, I mean, if I can comment on that really quickly, just put very simply, this movie had a budget of 19 million dollars, and it looks like total it grossed around 35 to 40 million dollars, you know, domestic and international. And so when I look at that, I'm like, it's just so rare for A, you know, the first part, excuse me. The first part of the equation is it seems so rare for a studio to greenlight a project like this that costs, you know, in today's dollars, it probably would have cost like $30 million and would have made around $50 to $60 million. It just feels like the studio doesn't greenlight movies like this anymore. But B, the second half of the equation, it doesn't feel like a movie like this would make double what it was budgeted for anymore. Like, I I feel like this movie could come out next weekend, right? And it would gross 20 million, 30 million. And on a budget of, let's just say 30 million, that is considered a huge failure. And honestly, it makes sense to me why a studio wouldn't Greenlight it like if it's not going to make money why are we going to make this film i i don't blame the studios for thinking that way sometimes so i don't know man that you could blame the audiences you can blame the studios i don't i'm not really interested in blaming anybody i just think it's sad that a movie like this just doesn't often get made anymore sometimes they do but they don't often get made anymore
1: all right man i think i'm ready to give my final score here brad i don't have too much more to say other than i think that this is like a, a perfect movie. <laughs> like I turned it on again. I was really wondering if I would be in the same place because it's been years and years since I've watched it and it works it, and it works even if you know what the twist is that's coming. And I think that's why it works so well and why it works better than a movie like The Departed, where the first time is always going to be the best time with that movie, because this movie is more about the philosophy and the 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 unsolvable questions underneath it all. And those questions still linger and still remain even after you've seen it a third, fourth, fifth time. It works so perfectly. I still think it's the best movie that Ben Affleck has ever made. And he made a movie that won best picture. If you haven't seen Gone Baby Gone, I cannot recommend it highly enough. It is a 10 out of 10 for me. I am like so incredibly
0: close to being with you, Bob. I I just walked away from this film being utterly impressed with nearly every aspect of the film. I think that there's just a little bit of caution in me. Like I said, I didn't care for Michelle Monaghan's character and how it was written. Um, There's a few other aspects of the movie that, like you said, felt a little slow, a little redundant, felt like they took a little bit too long to move around on. So I think I'm going to give it a nine and a half out of ten, but it it is
1: the closest nine and a half that could be a ten out of ten I think I've ever given. Well, we want to know what you think. Have you seen Gone Baby Gone? If you have, and once you have, because we want you to watch it, you can find us on our social medias. Come tell us what you thought of the film. Are you with us that it is a modern crime classic? Are you in a different place? You can let us know on our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, at Film Whiskey.
0: Or jump onto our Discord. Guys, we are on here every single day talking to our friends Of the film and whiskey podcast. So If you want to talk about whiskey or movies or traveling around the country or literally anything, jump onto our discord. You can find a link to it at the end of every one of our show notes. All right, Brad, we
1: are uh, almost out of movies to pick for this season. (laughs) We're near the end, Bob. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I think you've got like what, three left, something like that. I've put your movies into the randomizer here and we're going to click spin. And see what it lands on. Oh, we're going in a different direction next week, Brad. We're going to be watching uh, your your favorite franchise ever, a trilogy capping entertainment bonanza: two thousand five Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. Dude, what I will
0: say that is one of the best subtitles. Like I just Revenge of the Sith. It just carries so much gravitas to it i'm i'm looking forward
1: to it bob yeah man me too all right we'll see you next week for revenge of the sith but until then i'm bob book i'm brad g and we'll see you next time